Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Power Talk. Today's episode is titled Ukraine, Fossil Fuels, Hydrogen, Decarbonization, and the Grid. My name is Nate Woods. I'm a cat dealer marketing guy with about 15 years of experience. Joining me is Greg Lambert. He is a utility power guy with a little over 30 years of experience. And Greg had uh, given me some homework. He wanted me to read the DOE EIA AEO 2022. And what on earth all that means is the Department of Energy came up with this organization, the Energy Information Administration. They did this back in 73 because of the oil crisis and the energy crisis uh, that plagued us in the early 70s. And so the, the point of this agency is it is legally required to be separate from policy consideration and is mandated to only look at facts and data as it pertains to our energy. And their, their keystone report is the one I have in my hands. It's called the Annual Energy Outlook. And that's what we're going to be discussing today. So, Greg, hello. Welcome. Why don't you tell us what's on your mind and maybe why this report piqued your interest? Thanks, Nate. Uh, appreciate that. And I uh, want to thank everybody for just the uh, outstanding comments we've gotten from people since we did the first podcast. We've had a lot of uh, good feedback. We've uh, spoken to people who have listened to the podcast. We've gotten some ideas for uh for future discussions, we've gotten a lot of questions that we intend to answer in future discussions. And uh, as we said last time, Nate, what we're looking to do is we're looking to uh, kick off a dialogue here, a continuing dialogue with uh, our customers, with stakeholders, with anyone who's interested in these topics and uh, to, to have that dialogue and uh, keep it factual and uh, educate people and really uh, also you know, decide about the kind of future we want and what makes sense for us to do with our energy future. The, uh, the annual energy outlook uh, by, the, by the Energy Information Administration was released on March 3rd. And I thought it was very, very interesting when I saw it insofar as, you know, the, the very, very unfortunate situation in the Ukraine right now has really put energy into focus from a geopolitical perspective. Everybody is talking about energy. And uh, energy uh, as a category itself can really be divided into two. It can be divided into the transportation sector and the electric generation sector primarily. And, you know, the focus of uh, these discussions at Power Talk here is really on the electric generation sector. But uh, it's very difficult to uh, decouple the two um, in the context of, uh, of, of today's energy marketplace. And what I found fascinating is last time when we started this discussion, we talked about what's happening with renewables and the movement towards renewables and the efforts with decarbonization and the, um, the desire to totally decarbonize the electric generation market, some states by 2035, others by 2030. Right. And I believe I had mentioned that I thought the technologies were you know probably 15 to 20 years ahead of themselves and it was really an all of the above approach and then i saw the annual energy outlook report again which was released on march 3rd of this year and it stated that petroleum and natural gas will remain the most consumed sources of energy in the united states through at least 2050. and i just said to myself wow what an interesting statement for the u.s government to make um, at a time when so many uh, separate government agencies and regulatory agencies 
are pushing for complete decarbonization of the energy sector by 2035 or 2040, which seemed to me that there was just a disconnect there, again, between reality and policy. And I thought that was a really interesting area for perhaps you and I to dig into a little more um, in the context of a Power Talk podcast. I like that quite a bit. I like that quite a bit. And I flipped over to our uh, page slide number 11 of the report where it breaks out uh, natural gas consumption uh, by industry by decade. And it really underlines your point where it's tough to decouple the, the electric usage versus the, uh, the transportation or the industrial usage on these things. Um, yeah, so I guess what, what's the reality check then, uh, say on a state level, trying to decarbonize while natural gas is still still so high? Well, it's a very interesting uh, challenge, and it's a problem that uh, California is going to be grappling with over the next couple of years. Um, I think we mentioned uh, Diablo Canyon in our last discussion, and you know Diablo Canyon is a nuclear facility in San Luis Obispo, California, that produces uh, almost 10% of the energy consumed in California, and this is carbon-free, around-the-clock energy. And the shutdown of Diablo Canyon is really going to necessitate uh, the addition of uh, more natural gas resources and the extension of life of existing natural gas resources. Um, I know there are people that will argue with me about this and saying that you can do it uh, all with renewables, with solar, wind, and energy storage, but uh, just don't see it. And the numbers don't suggest it when you look at the uh, usage and use curves in California and uh, the need for that energy, especially at times when the sun isn't available or, or the wind may not be available, and the overlay of the cost that it's going to take to provide all of the storage necessary. And again, it, it suggests that uh, we're going to see increasing amounts of natural gas usage uh, in California at a time when uh, California legislators and regulators are doing everything they can to minimize the use of natural gas. In fact, I saw just this past week that, uh, uh, I think this came from the Public Utilities Commission, don't quote me on this, but California is no longer calling natural gas natural gas, they're calling it fossil gas to kind of wave in the consumer's face uh, the source of that gas. So well, well, that's um, real interesting. It, 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 it is really, really interesting. And again, I, I, I think, you know, we'll, we'll say numerous times and We'll continue to say that the intentions are good. We, we understand and applaud the intention of the industry as a whole to clean itself up and decarbonize. But again, are, are we moving too fast, uh, especially at a time when uh, the data may suggest otherwise? Well, and, and so we're, we're having these issues on the generation side. And something pointed out in this report is that even if the economy stays um, roughly flat as to projection, our energy consumption is going to go up. And if the economy does uh, well at all, then our energy, energy consumption is going to go up rather dramatically. And at the same time, we're, as we discussed on our first episode, moving a lot of vehicles, especially fleet vehicles, to an EV or an electric vehicle platform, uh, which is further going to increase demands, and I don't know, maybe circling back to nuclear, like outside of, do you have visibility to nuclear plants outside of the state? Is this a localized issue where we're canceling it? Or is this, is this a national trend? Wow, I think you just asked about 30 questions <laughs> in, in, in that statement, Nate. Um, 
Let let me start by uh, by this this overlay, and uh, if you look historically, the affluence of a society is directly proportional to the amount of energy it consumes. So you know the efforts being made for energy efficiency and, th and those types of things. Absolutely, we should be doing everything we can to use energy efficiently and not waste any precious resources we have available to us. But the fact of the matter is. If we want to keep our first world lifestyle and uh, and be an affluent society, our energy usage will increase. Well, I just want to point out uh, the affluence of a society also points to how much pollution they generate. The more poor your society is, typically, uh, the less it cares about things like rainforest, about sustainability. That's it's much more interested in survival um, and day-to-day -day health than it is, say, a 50-year outlook. My, my apologies, please. please continue. No, it's, it's all perspective. Uh, perfect example, just to take a, a, a sideline here, coming out of the store the other night, the guy had a brand new, uh, you know, uh, pickup truck, probably paid, you know, $80,000, $90,000 for his pickup truck, and he was lamenting that he had just had it washed and it rained. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, my God, haven't you watched the news lately? I mean, there are such bigger problems in the world right now than a couple of water spots on your pickup truck. But, uh, and, and that's where I think this conversation comes in. I think there may be some, uh, some readjustment and some recalibration uh, from an energy perspective with regards to the, uh, the timing and scheduling of decarbonization efforts. Uh, certainly globally. Uh, let, let's look at Germany. I mean, Germany uh, shut down all of its nuclear plants, and now they're looking at potentially restarting those nuclear plants because uh, they may not be able to get as much natural gas as they thought from uh, for, from Russia. So, you know, these are geopolitical um, issues on, on the energy front. And, uh, Can you imagine we, the cost of, of pulling a nuclear plant offline and then firing it? Do you actually know the cost of that? Because I... It's got to be an insane amount of money. I don't. Nu nuclear is not an area where I have a lot of expertise. I did spend some time uh, at PG&E's Humboldt nuclear plant where I saw uh, a decommissioning where they were removing fuel and, and, and burying that fuel long term. Uh, it is, uh, it is a ver anything nuclear is a very, very slow process, just overly burdened with paperwork. It's basically uh, one man per megawatt, and 98% uh, <laughs> of the people are doing paperwork, for, from what I saw. The regulations are just incredible. But uh, I think nuclear is being rethought. Um, I think in this country, uh, we are rethinking nuclear a little bit if we're truly going to decarbonize. Uh, the new nuclear plants are not what we've seen in the past. They're, you know, they're not a Trojan or they're not a Diablo Canyon or a Songs. These new nuclear plants are small. They're, they're air-cooled. They have closed-loop cooling systems, so they don't need large water supplies. They, they, take, they find small. Uh, small, 100 megawatts on five acres. Okay. As opposed to thousands of megawatts on hundreds of acres, these new modularized plants, uh, the building block looks like it's gonna be about 100 megawatts on five acres. So uh, very e easy, much, much easier to site, uh, utilizing much less water. And again, we had some discussions last time about the challenges of the transmission system and building out that transmission system. Uh, it'll be easier to site these uh, new nuclear facilities where, where they're needed. But I don't want to go too far down this path. I want to stay more, uh, more relevant uh, to, to our customers and many of whom are, uh, are looking at solutions behind the meter. 
and uh, on the retail side of the meter at their at their actual facility. And I think one of the things that came out in the report that I found fascinating is that the uh, the annual energy outlook from the Energy Information Administration is predicting a doubling of the uh, of the amount of power that's going to be generated on site and behind the meter um, uh, between 2021 between now and 2050. So right now uh, nationally, uh, that's about four percent of electricity generation is actually done on the retail side of the meter. That's going to eight percent. That's a huge growth opportunity for Peterson Power Systems and a huge undertaking by many of our customers to uh, start thinking about providing their own uh, electric generation and security on their side of the meter as opposed to relying on the transmission system and the grid as a whole to provide the reliability, which as we've discussed and as we've seen over the last few years is uh, more and more coming into question. And, and for those following along, that is uh, slide 14 uh, where it talks about the the increase of electrical growth, and I'm curious. What Slide this... 14 of the of the annual energy outlook presentation. Yes. Okay. Yes. Uh, and I'm curious if, if you've got a feel for what kind of fuel mix that's going to be for the for the behind the meter generation as it as it looks to double. Uh, is, is that natural gas? Do you think is that uh, is that one of these new fuels coming online? What's your thoughts there? Well, this is this is where it gets really exciting for Peterson Power Systems with all the things we're doing in this area. Um, these are going to be microgrids. Uh, again, it's going to be an all-the-above approach. Rooftops are going to be covered with solar panels. We're going to take all that sunlight we can get. Uh, we're going to use energy storage. We're going to use batteries to store that solar and to energy shift, as we discussed a little last time. And I think we're going to get much deeper into batteries and shifting and energy storage throughout this podcast series. I, I think there's a number of questions coming in in that area, and I really want to give our listeners some meat and some expertise in that area. But even when you pair solar and storage, um, you still need the third leg of that stool, which uh, it, today is an internal combustion engine. And the internal combustion engines that we supply, Caterpillar engines, best in class reciprocating engines, um, typically utilize either natural gas fuel in California, okay, I, I, I submit, I'll call it fossil gas, but they're either using natural gas fuels or they're typically using uh, diesel. Uh, diesel generation. And when we talk about energy storage, uh, historically, the best energy storage has been natural gas or fossil gas in a pipe mm -hmm. or diesel fuel in a tank. And as we go forward and look at what we're doing here at Peterson and at Caterpillar as a whole with you know these highly uh, sophisticated, highly um, reliable reciprocating engines is we're fuel switching. Um, a fossil gas uh, reciprocating engine, or what we call a spark ignited engine, uh, fuels are changing and we're looking more and more to uh, renewable natural gas and other forms of gas, biogases, those types of things to, to run those engines. And um, we will have more discussion 
on a future podcast about uh, biogas and renewable natural gas, specifically in the wastewater treatment and water treatment sector. We've had some questions from our listeners, and we, we're, in, we're an interactive podcast here. Uh, you send us your questions, and we're going to do the best we can to address them. So, Matter of fact, that's the, the first comment we got on YouTube was that very question. Yeah, we're all over it. We actually have an expert in-house who's probably done more wastewater treatment and water treatment plants and biogas than anybody on the West Coast, and we're going to have him uh, join us for an upcoming podcast and really get deep into that subject. Uh, when we look at liquid fuels, uh, what's happening in the, uh, in the diesel sector is, is nothing short of amazing with regards to uh, renewable diesel. Now, there is some confusion in the marketplace between biodiesel and renewable diesel. And, you know, biodiesel came out about 15 years ago or so, and biodiesel was actually, uh, manufacturers were blending um, you know, you know, uh, various uh, restaurant fats and oils and stuff like that with existing diesel. And engine manufacturers had different specs between B5 to B20. B5 was 5% uh, biodiesel. Bio uh, B20 was up to 20%. Caterpillar has experience with up to 20%. But what's happened over the last few years is the whole realm of renewable diesel which is actually a drop in replacement for diesel fuel. And the engine doesn't really know if it's burning diesel or renewable diesel, um, except for a little bit of performance and response time, maybe about uh, two, three percent of performance, a little slower in response to, you know, two to three percentage points. But this is the, the renewable is the same as HBO or the hydro-treated vegetable oil? Correct. Yeah, it's, uh, renewable diesel is also commonly known as hydro-treated vegetable oil. Yeah, and you said, uh, said we're going to start manu. Well, we uh, Californians are going to start manufacturing that. Uh, that. That's exciting. Happening big time, big time. Uh, there are two major refineries in the San Francisco Bay Area that are converting to 100% uh, biodiesel fuels. Uh, I'm sorry, 100% renewable diesel fuels, not biodiesel, but renewable diesel. The uh, I think we mentioned a little bit about this last time, but the uh, the Phillips 66 plant in Rodeo. And uh, the uh, the Tesoro plant in uh, in Martinez, and there was just an announcement that Neste, who's the largest uh, producer of HVO hydrogen vegetable oil on the planet, is, uh, is is joint venturing with Marathon in that facility, and very very exciting because when you look at these new renewable diesels, uh, they are 100% renewable. There are no hydrocarbons involved in them. The uh, greenhouse gas reductions in the life cycle production of these fuels is on the order of 70%, and they are much cleaner, uh, much much um, much less uh, particulate matter and other contaminants uh, coming out as a result of these fuels. And the conversion processes themselves, when I look at that refinery in Rodeo right now, or if you're in Southern Cal Rodeo, but when I look at that refinery, um, in addition to creating you know over five or six hundred union jobs to do that conversion, they're eliminating the use of a billion gallons of water a year from their operations and reducing their carbon footprint by about 70%. So very, very exciting. And then where this gets really exciting is uh, biodiesel was very problematic insofar as its shelf life was very short. Mm -hmm. Biodiesel had a shelf life inside of six months. Um, Neste, we're told, and speaking with them, uh, the original batches that they ran of hydro-treated vegetable oil more than 16 years ago, they test them every six months, and they are still meeting original specs 16 years later. 
So uh, I heard about that. That's that's pretty incredible to still meet original spec. I've I've seen photos of the this HVO fuel versus diesel fuel, and the, for the diesel fuel example, they had to have like a dozen different examples of diesel fuel because, and I did not know this. There's uh, there's no real regularity to the diesel fuel that you can purchase. It, it depends on where it came from, who refined it, what tolerance it was set to. But then the HBO, it's, it's like looking at uh, Crystal Pepsi or, or Pepsi Clear. Yep. It, it, it's an entirely different animal. It, it really is. And uh, Peterson recognized this a few years ago. In fact, uh, I may have mentioned this before. I'm very proud of this. So uh, I love getting on my, uh, my Peterson soapbox and preaching a little bit. But we were actually an early adopter and a pioneer in the usage of hydro-treated vegetable oil for, uh, for stationary engines for power generation as part of our work with Pacific Gas and Electric Company in addressing their public safety power shutoffs. Uh, in 2020 and 2021, we maximized the utilization of hydro-treated vegetable oil in all of those installations uh, to the point where the California Public Utilities Commission now is, is recognizing it almost as a state-of-the-art and uh, just short of mandating, but trying to mandate the maximization of hydro-treated vegetable oil in that use case for, for public safety power shutoffs. So very, very exciting there. We're seeing a lot of interest in, uh, in hydro-treated vegetable oil for our mission-critical customers, our, our data center customers. Uh, many of our data center custom, customers are very uh, focused on, uh, on ESG goals, uh, ESG goals being uh, environment, social, and, uh, and, and governance. Or you know, basically, you, your your carbon score is part of your ESG goals, and as these become more and more important to the boardroom, to uh, the C-suite, and uh, most importantly to investors, um, hydro-treated vegetable oil represents a tremendous opportunity uh, to uh, to decarbonize operations and still provide the uh, the surety, the insurance that they need for these for these mission critical operations. So, is there is there a plus to use HVO for uh, you know, let's say I own a grocery store or a winery and I've got backup generators. Um, at, at that kind of a scale, does it make sense to, to start using HBO at this point? Is there a point where it will make sense? Or what's the, what's the consideration there for, uh, for the smaller users? Well, very, very good question. Let's, let, let's go back to the, uh, the beginning of the podcast where we talked about the bifurcation of the industry into electrical generation and transportation. Mm-hmm. And the fact of the matter is on the transportation side, there are tax incentives in place through the LCFS, the Low Carbon Fuel Standard, that really incentivize people to use HVO, hydro-treated vegetable oil, as opposed to fossil diesel. And that's California only, right? That's California only, okay. but coming soon to a city near you. <laughs> and uh, I, I think we'll, we'll see those, uh, those standards permeate their way through the country because they're, they're making sense and they're working. They are working. So there is a little bit of a uh, penalty, if you will, to use HVO for a stationary application right now. But uh, I think that's being worked on and addressed uh, in, in the lobbying community. I think there's a recognition of the advantages this fuel can provide. So um, from, from the owner's perspective, from the user's perspective, you're not going to see any difference in the performance of your equipment. Um, we'll, we'll take 100% HVO all day long. Uh, if you store it properly, you're not seeing any, any problems with regards to the storage of it. Um, it's odorless. 
Uh, it's a lot cleaner than, uh, than, than fossil diesel. And I think a lot of people are interested in moving to HVO because it's the right thing to do. And, you know, those two refinery, uh, uh, those, those refinery upgrades we, we talked about, uh, they don't come cheap. These are six, seven hundred million dollar investments these companies are making to produce hydro-treated vegetable oil. So obviously they see the market coming and they see the consumer wanting to do the right thing. Uh, with regards to uh, to clean air and, and decarbonization, so I think we'll see more and more of it. Yeah, and, and I just had a thought. Um, yeah, you, you talked about um, how stable this fuel is, and so if if I've just got a backup generator and it runs, you know, whenever I test it effectively, um, there's got to be a cost to to service that diesel or to you know, reduce the uh, the wear of the engine just by having the the chemical corroding inside of it. Do you have any idea what what savings might be just on the maintenance end for a for a standby generator? I don't think we're going to see a savings with regards to fossil diesel versus HVO. Mm -hmm. I think the maintenance intervals and and what what our technicians do when they're out servicing diesel engines will be very very similar. Where you see the big difference is if you were going to biodiesel. Biodiesel uh, did do uh, did create some problems with with engines and did have a lot of challenges with its shelf life. Okay, but we we could certainly dig a little bit more into that. Um, I don't have a lot of expertise in that area. That's just uh, my initial thoughts based on based on what you've asked. It'd be fun to have a fuels expert. Uh, yeah, we can certainly do that. Let's let, let's get a fuels expert on a, on a future podcast and, uh, and and get deep into the tank. Um, the last piece I did want to talk about here briefly, though, is and this is an area where Caterpillar is really showing leadership, and all of the engine manufacturers and turbine manufacturers. We're all running the same race right now. We're all on the same track, and and that's hydrogen to to maximize the amount of hydrogen that we're capable of using because uh, we are capable now of producing hydrogen with green energy. So to the extent we have XX solar midday and we can produce hydrogen, bottle that hydrogen, and use it when we need it, mm -hmm. um, that creates a very very exciting opportunity and really cements the need. For, uh, for reciprocating engines uh, many, many years out. So uh, we are involved right now with Caterpillar looking at some uh, potential hydrogen demonstration type projects where we're looking to burn increased amounts of hydrogen. Right now, depending on the, uh, on the application and depending on the, uh, on the gen set, uh, we're capable of taking anywhere between 5 and 25 to 30% hydrogen right now in our current product line. Now, can that adjust, um, like if an engine is set for 5% hydrogen, is it locked into 5% or can it ramp up and ramp down? Oh, uh, there is some range. I'm not sure if it can go full range because we're talking about differences in geometries of the fuel system. So there is an optimization of the fuel system to allow for a certain percentage of hydrogen. Okay. Okay, but uh, what's really exciting is uh, Caterpillar is coming out in 2023 with a machine capable of burning 100% hydrogen. And to my knowledge, I believe we're one of the first uh, engine manufacturers to, uh, to make this announcement, this bold announcement. And there's a lot of uh, collaboration going on right now with industry partners to uh, get these units out there and uh, start getting the operating hours and the data necessary to uh, support the wider adaptation of the technology to fleet. I just want to underline for, for the customer or uh, for the listeners out there, because uh, this blew my mind, hydrogen is a zero carbon so if we have an engine that's running 100% hydrogen, correct me if I'm wrong, Greg, that is a zero 
carbon reciprocating engine producing electricity. That's correct. That blows me away. What size of engine is, uh, do we know what size the first one's going to be? Well, you know, right now, because hydrogen is, is, is so much lighter than natural gas, and, you know, there are some mass flow issues, there is a significant D rate on a hydrogen engine versus a natural gas engine uh, on the order of almost 50%. Okay. So what that means uh, is that if I have a 2 megawatt genset, uh, rated 2 megawatts on natural gas, if I'm going to run that genset on 100% hydrogen, uh, the D rate, the rating of that unit may go down as low as one megawatt um, because of the uh, just the the physics and the chemistry of, uh, of of utilizing hydrogen as opposed to natural gas. So we're working through all of that right now, but um, you know f physics are what physics are. And uh, but the fact that uh, you know, two, three years ago, the notion of being able to uh, utilize 100% hydrogen fuel in a reciprocating engine was uh, a lot further out on the horizon uh, than, than it is today. I mean, two or three years ago, maybe it was 10 years out on the horizon, hmm. and two or three years have passed by, and now it's a couple years out on the horizon. So uh, tremendous strides are being made with this technology, which is really, really exciting. Because uh, as, you know, getting back to uh, where we started with, with the annual energy outlook, um, you know, as much as uh, the, there is this, a large segment of our, of our leadership, of our, of our economy, of, of, our, of our populace that's looking to fully decarbonate, uh, decarbonize the energy sector, uh, the data is showing that, um, you know, we're going to be using gas and oil out, out through at least 2050. I want to hammer a little bit on hydrogen, just if I can, because, uh, like, from a safety standpoint, and, and, and you can just say if this isn't your field of expertise, uh, like, is it heavier than air? Is it lighter than air? Is it, is it explosive? And I guess really what I'm asking is if, if there's a leak in a tank, uh, how bad is that? If there's, like, a sudden failure of a, a fuel system... How bad is that? How how safe of a fuel is hydrogen as compared to say uh, fossil diesel? Um, very different animal. Hydro hydrogen uh, combusts very, very very rapidly. Okay. So there are a lot more safety uh, considerations. If you had a bucket full of fossil diesel or even HVO, and you threw a cigarette into that bucket, it would go out. Okay. Because it needs to be compressed. The diesel needs to be compressed to uh, to ignite where hydrogen is a little different. So there's a lot of thought right now going into the hydrogen system with regards to how do we best transport it and how do we do it safely. So does that disqualify it, say, from being like a transportation fuel? You, you might not want to have a truck with a hydrogen cell moving 70 miles an hour, um, but much more okay to have it on like a, in, in a stationary uh, gin set where you can where you can put some protections around it. No, I, I don't think so. I, th I think uh, especially in the transportation sector and trucks and stuff, we're going to see hydrogen uh, utilized in fuel cells primarily, solid state fuel cells. But you know, when you do look at the transportation sector and you look at the decarbonization of the transportation sector, the EV is only going to get you so far. Hmm. You know, the uh, the the electric vehicle uh, truck. If, if you will, the the Nikolai truck or the, the Tesla 18-wheeler, call it what you will, uh, it's going to get you from Portland to Eugene. It's going to get you from San Francisco to Sacramento. It might get you from San Francisco to Los Angeles, but it's not going to get you from L.A. to New York. 
You right. know, so they're still we're we're still going to need fuel in the transportation sector uh, with that future fuel probably being in the form of hydrogen and probably being utilized in, in in fuel cells. That's a little far out there, not a not an area of my expertise, but what I've been reading lately and uh, what I've been studying. That's what that's where. Uh, the, the people who are much smarter than myself uh, seem to be uh, seem to be falling right now. Okay. So I think um, looking looking at my time and uh, looking where we're trying to keep these things, I think again, I think this has been a great conversation. Um, I think we as a society need to uh, embrace. Um, every form of energy uh, available to us on, on pros and cons. There, there is no one answer. Um, I think uh, we're learning a lot more about energy, unfortunately, than we want to. I mean, diesel uh, surpassed $6 a gallon last week, and that's going to change everything. The price of diesel affects over 35% of our economy with regards to the price of anything that's moved with diesel. Uh, your food... Uh, most of your uh, most of your durable goods, uh, all your consumables, since it's being trucked around, those pa those costs are going to get passed along, and uh, we're we're all going to start feeling that pain. So uh, you know, it's it's a very very interesting time uh, with regards to people becoming uh, very very aware of the realities of the technologies we have available to us today, uh, the promise of the technologies of the future. Uh, and a uh, an overlay of uh, of realism with regards to uh, schedule and uh, and capability of various technologies as we uh, as we press on in our uh, in our battle to uh, decarbonize the energy sector. Yeah, and I, so an overlay of realism. You know, some some things you've said are the technology is not there yet. Um, in in your opinion, it's the technology is you know a decade out, maybe more than that, and yet we're mandating these things. So I mean, how how scared should we all be uh, about the electric grid at this point? I know scared isn't the right word, but how how seriously should folks be taking preparations? Uh, you know, that, I think that's a that's a question that each energy user and consumer needs needs to answer for themselves. Um, you know, a lot of people are going uh, are going uh, off the grid, and uh, you know, are are you okay with uh, you know with just being able to run a coffee pot for a couple of days in a refrigerator and not everything else in, in your home? Th those are the types of questions that people are going to start asking themselves. For many of our customers, many of Peterson Power Systems' bread and butter customers, the notion of doing without electricity even for a few minutes is not acceptable. And that's where we're going to continue to offer tremendous value behind the meter at, at their locations and provide them with solutions, uh, be it either, you know, classical diesel gensets um, operating on both fossil diesel and hydro-treated vegetable oil now, mm -hmm. or microgrid systems where we're utilizing solar systems along with batteries and, and generation uh, maybe we're using natural gas generators, maybe we're using hydrogen generators in the future. But um, this is going to get more and more critical to, uh, to our core customers. And I think that's where working in partnership with our customers, uh, we're going to really excel as a leading supplier of integrated solutions uh, to, to help our customers uh, focus on their business and uh, not have to worry about their lights going out. 
I cannot wait to see the solutions that come out of it. I'm, I'm sure we're going to see amazing stuff. Yeah, it's an exciting time. It, it, it really is an exciting time, and uh, we're going to see a lot of ingenuity, as we discussed, on both sides of the meter. Uh, some of the uh, some of the energy storage uh, installations going in right now are just incredible. Some of the advances being made in long-duration storage, um, the, uh, the movement towards uh, offshore wind. Uh, there was just a $12 million grant issued up in Humboldt County to start building infrastructure to bring offshore wind into Humboldt Bay. So there's a lots, lots and lots of parts and pieces moving in all this. And uh, just a very, very exciting time to be in the energy sector. And, uh, you know, our customers, uh, if you're worried about it, call us. Let's, let's talk about uh, how you can sleep at night and not be worried about it. We're here to help. Uh, we've got lots of tools at our fingertips, and uh, we look forward to working with you. Outstanding. Uh, we we all clearly don't have time to talk about it, but I think, uh, and I'll, I'll link the report below. Check out slide 16 if you're interested in uh, the time of day for generation. And Greg, you'd mentioned uh, an operator's website that shows similar data. I'll link that as well. Okay. And I wish I would have said this in the first podcast, but, uh, but I'm saying it now. Uh, to everyone who works for these utilities, uh, the linemen out there, the people working the phone banks, everyone who keeps everything working, thank you. Uh, it's just I really appreciate having electricity and, and a society that operates off of electricity. Yeah, I, I'll, I'll second that, Nate. It's just, uh, you know, electricity is something that, uh, for better or for worse, society, societally, we just take it for granted, and uh, nobody really thinks about it un, un, until it's not there. And the uh, tremendous efforts by people at load-serving entities everywhere, whether it be a utility, a municipality, a co-op, uh, what have you, uh, just the tremendous effort uh, that these people put in day in and day out to every keep the lights on. Every single day. Every single day, just to keep the lights on 24-7 uh, should be recognized. And uh, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, Nate, and uh, happy to uh, recognize the, the uh, incredible efforts of uh, all these people throughout the uh, electricity industry that keep our lights on every day. Thank you. Yeah, and thank you to everyone for listening, making it this far. As always, we would love to hear your comments. We would love to take your questions. And we want this to be more of a dialogue. We want your interest to guide what we do, who we bring on, and the topics we tackle. Absolutely. And uh, like I said, we're, we're going to be bringing some uh, industry experts into this conversation. We've got a few lined up already, so I think... Uh, we're, we're, we're just getting started here. This is very, very exciting. The uh, initial response, uh, we couldn't be happier. And uh, let's just keep it going. All right. Thank you, everyone. Thank you.